Please join with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for being the great and good God that you are. And as we have worshipped you in our songs and in our prayers, in our offering, we worship you now in the understanding of your word. Holy Spirit, speak to us the truth that we need to hear for ourselves. You have not only given us the word, but you are the interpreter of it. And you're the one who makes it understandable to us. So I pray that you will shine that light upon your word today. I pray that you will use my teaching, the word that you've given to me as I've prepared it this week. And I pray, Lord, that you will speak to each and every person a word that you have to say to them. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for those of you who are younger, you might not remember the song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. But for old people like me, it was a song that was a hit during the folk era, right? The late 50s, the early 1960s. And it was, if you will, a feel-good song. He's got the whole world in his hands. And it just affirmed that we belong together and that God has us together. And you might think that it looks like this. But what about when God disciplines us? What about when God calls us to repentance? What about God when he's bringing about godly changes in our life and using difficult circumstances to draw us closer to himself, perhaps even tragedy. It's not so wonderful when he has us in, our hand, in his hands at that moment. It might look more like this or feel more like this to us. Or if not this spotlight on us, this gun pointed at us, then... It looks like this. We're alone. How are you when God brings judgment and discipline to bear in your life? Really? Well, in Isaiah chapter 10, 5 through 34, we're going to see that God brings a terrible judgment upon Israel and Judah. It is a terrible evil that they will undergo. But ultimately, this is for God's sovereign purposes and for his good because even in this, God has them in his hands. Chapter 10 essentially reveals to us that God uses any human agency that he chooses to use to accomplish his will. He not only uses the righteous as we might expect, and assume to accomplish his will and purposes, but God uses the unrighteous for his purposes. So if you have your Bible, or if you have an electronic Bible that you use, I want you to open it up to Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 34. We're going to go through the text today, and we're going to see how this plays itself out. And how even when God uses the unrighteous, that he in no way compromises his moral integrity, his holiness, and righteousness. 
So here's the first thing. In verses 5 through 19, we see that God uses the unrighteous Assyrians to accomplish his will. He declares it through the prophet. We read, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. God is declaring that he uses Assyria, and he is going to use them to carry out judgment against his people, both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. God, when he established his covenant promise with his people, before they entered into the promised land, he told them that should they forsake God, should they stop living up to the covenant promises that they have made with God, that God would judge them. And he would bring terrible disaster upon them. And they would be taken away into exile. But when they turned back to God, that God would bring them back. 700 years have passed (coughs) since that covenant was made. And they have trusted God during that 700 years, but they have more often forsaken God. And they have worshipped God during that 700 years, but they have more often worshipped other gods. God has shown them time and again mercy and grace. He has protected them and he has provided for them. Finally now, God brings judgment to them. Now before we proceed off of this point, you may be tempted to think, how foolish can the Israelites be? I mean, God has set them apart. He saved them from the Egyptians. Look at all the things God has done for them, and yet they simply have forsaken God. They don't trust God. How can they not get it? Well, for a moment, I want you to take that same spotlight and put it on yourself. If you are a believer, if you believe that Jesus is the incarnation of God, that he died upon that cross for salvation, that he is your Savior, then let me ask the question of you. Why have you forsaken him? Why have you not trusted him completely? We are not unlike them. I have lived a lot of years. I know that's hard to believe. And during that time, I could tell you that I have seasons when I have been closer to God and other times when I have been farther away from God. And when I move back closer into relationship with God, I wonder why would I have moved farther away from God when I know so much about God and His love and His mercy and His grace and His truth and His holiness 
and his judgment. I just want to make sure that we don't easily judge the people of God unless we judge ourselves with that same ease. We read on now in verse 7 through 11. But he, this is referring to the Assyrian king, Sankarib, does not so intend, and his heart does not think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few, for he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kelno like Carchemish? Is not Hamuth like Harpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand is reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images. God has set Sennacherib and the Assyrian army to be an instrument of his judgment and wrath against his people. But the king has not intended it to be so. He does not see himself as an agent of God. He is not accountable to God for how his army will act. He will answer to no one except himself. And he sees it as an opportunity for plunder and for wealth. He sees himself as all-powerful. After all, he's conquering nations. People are trusting their God, and he's conquering them. And he says, they're nothing but idols. I'm more powerful than they are. And will I not do to God's people what I have done to the others? His pride and his arrogance have full vent in him. And his intentions are to overpower Israel and Judah, to destroy them and take the wealth for himself. Let's read on now in verses 12 through 15. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, this is the reference to the wrath of God and the judgment being poured out upon them through the Assyrians, when God is done with that, he, that is God, will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I've gathered all the earth. There is none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. God affirms that he is sovereign over the nations and he will turn his judgment now upon the Assyrians 
when the work of the judgment of God's people is over. Nothing happens. Nothing will happen. And nothing happens, even on an international level, that is beyond God's sovereign purposes. The remarkable thing about God is that nothing happens to you in your individual lives that God doesn't know about. Remember what Jesus said when he taught the Sermon on the Mount? Are you not of more value than these sparrows and these birds? God knows what they need. He gives it to them. God knows exactly what's happening to you. The God of the universe and of the galaxies and of all creation, who has all of this working, He is aware of even you and me, of all of us. And He cares about it. But He is also the God whose sovereign will is working over all of creation. And he is aware of all of that. And nothing happens that is beyond his sovereign purposes. Some of you may be wondering, as I do, when I look out at the political landscape of our country, I wonder, why is there so much chaos? It is not something that I am used to. I have not experienced this in my lifetime. There is an incivility that exists between politicians. And I see an incivility existing between people now. And it bothers me. And I wonder, how will we get back to the order that I once knew? Well, I was a history teacher, so I know a little bit about the history of the United States. And there was a time in our history when there was great incivility that existed back in the early 1800s. And somehow our country got beyond that. But here's what I'm going to say, and this isn't a word from the Lord, this is just a word from me. Unless God intervenes, I don't see how it changes. But I think it's appropriate, and I feel encouraged, even in the midst of today and the political climate we have, that we are reading and studying Isaiah because it affirms for me that God is still in control of it all. His sovereign purposes are still being worked out in it all. And if I read Isaiah right, then judgment will come to everyone. And perhaps part of what we are experiencing or will be experiencing even more of, is the judgment of God against our own unrighteousness. I don't know, but I'm grateful for this study because it reminds me that God is in charge. And when I fear and wonder what my children or my grandchildren will inherit, and I feel a level of responsibility for that because I believe I should have left the world a better place than the world I found, 
I still know that God is the sovereign Lord over all things, and nothing happens unless he allows it. Let's read on 16 through 19. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel, that is God, will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour the thorns and the briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. God is judging his people. There is no doubt about that in this. And in the last verse, the prophet uses the imagery of a master forester who is the one who determines which trees will be cut down and which trees will be remaining. You all know every year I go up to Canada and fish. One of the fun things I get to do. And I travel with my buddies. And when we get up to travel into Canada toward the lake, there are several areas that are being forested. And it's really interesting to see where there will be a portion of these pine trees and awesome trees, and it's level. And then there's other just exists and remains. And then you see it somewhere else. And the foresters who are coming to do this are determining which ones will be cut down, which ones will remain, so that they keep the forest proper. Well, God is the master forester. He knows what he wants for the forest, and he intends to cut down the trees. He intends that northern Israel will be completely leveled, and he intends that there will be but a remnant of Judah left. That remnant, though, will become the promised fulfillment of God. He will keep his redemptive promise to save humankind and creation from sin and death and the devil. The Redeemer, the Messiah, he will come through the Jewish people and he will be a descendant of David and he will establish the kingdom of God forever so that the nations may be included among God's people. And God will reign forever and ever through him. Well, this leads us to the second part of this chapter, verses 20 through 29. And what we see in this is that even... As God uses the unrighteous, God does not compromise his moral integrity. God is just, and God holds Assyria accountable for the evil that they perform and do. Let's read verses 20 through 23. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, 
overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of the earth. God will save the remnant. Israel will be destroyed and Judah pruned seriously. He says that though all have turned away from him, the remnant will turn away from the treaty that was made with the Assyrians and they will completely trust in God. And in time, that remnant will flourish. It will fulfill God's purposes and God's sovereign will. Let's read verses 24 now through 29. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end, and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip, as when he struck Midian at the rock at Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of the fat. And he will come to Ayat, he has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he restores his baggage. They have crossed over the path at Giva. They lodge for the night. Ramah trembles, and Giva of Saul has fled. When the judgment of God's people is fulfilled, God will judge the Assyrians for the evil they have done. Their pride and arrogance has led to their fall. They have assumed that they are all-powerful. They have invaded Israel and Judah for their own purposes, intending evil and harm rather than holy judgment. God assures his people that Assyria will be stopped. He tells them not to fear. And he gives them two historical references to remember. Experiences where God saved his people. The first, Egypt. The second, the Philistines. God delivered his people from oppression and slavery, from terror and death. God has done it before and God will do it again. The Bible records that in God's time on the eve of of the Assyrians coming to Jerusalem, 180,000 Assyrian soldiers fell by the plague. Sankarib departed for home after that. The Assyrians were never the same, and their reign of terror came to an end. History records that a new nation would take up their place, Babylon. And Babylon would return to conquer the remnant from the Assyrian invasion. And they would continue God's judgment. The remnant that was left, that was taken on the Babylonian conquest, would be even far smaller than those left from the Assyrians. Yet God 
will reestablish his people as a nation and fulfill his promises and make them great in his plan of salvation. There are many things that I could do in terms of talking about this section and applying it to our lives. But what I felt most drawn to was to talk about pride. The downfall of Sankarib and the Assyrian people. Pride is something that affects us all. And we have little knowledge of how serious it really is. Oh, we see it in the pathological narcissist. But do we see it in ourselves? The Desert Fathers, early Christians, took time to contemplate and reflect and pray and try to understand what it meant to live holy lives, to put off the old self and put on the new self, to put off the sin nature and put on the Spirit of God. And as they looked at this, and if we understand Scripture, we participate in this process of sanctification with the Holy Spirit. What they determined were certain vices and virtues. And from those vices come what we know as the seven deadly sins. These are all root sins that the desert fathers realized give birth to other sins in our life. That makes them serious. That's why they call them deadly sins. But the worst of all of them, at the root of all of them, the desert fathers said, is pride. Pride. They called it vain glory. Our culture says that pride is justified, even good, although it can be dangerous. But spiritually, it is very dangerous for us because it is a root sin that will lead to other sins. It is a desire for preeminence in our lives. It is a desire that causes us to seek attention, to want to be great, to feel superior to others, and to even claim personal glory that belongs to God. It removes God from the throne of your life and keeps you on that throne. That's why it's so dangerous. The faces of pride, the desert fathers said, were self-promotion. Now think about that. Self-promotion. What are we taught to do in our culture? Is it not self-promotion? Another one that we might not think is pride but is the other side of the coin is self-pity. 
Now, how does self-pity and pride go together? Well, pride puffs up the ego. Think of a balloon. You blow it up with air, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's bigger than life. And that's how the proud are, bigger than life. But when something comes and pops that balloon, what happens to it? It deflates. And then what happens? It has no confidence. It has no substance. What is left is self-pity. And the desert fathers say the third face of pride is self-righteousness. That we are good and we are better and we can make those judgments and take the place of God. Well, two out of these three, self-promotion and self-righteousness, were in the thoughts of the Assyrian king. Perhaps the last one. While the Bible doesn't tell us it was in his thoughts, perhaps as the king returned home defeated by the judgment of God, his ego was so deflated that he experienced the third because he and the nation never recovered from that judgment. So why did I choose pride? To apply this point, it's because pride is a problem we can all deal with and relate to. We all easily assume the place of God, do we not? Do you not? Do I not? When I fail to go to God and say, what is it that you want, Lord? And I just try to think through it all myself and have all the answers myself. What am I saying about me? And what am I saying about my wisdom? And why am I putting my wisdom above the wisdom of God? And don't think that pride is just because people are filled with narcissism. Many of us have been deeply wounded in our lives. And we try hard to fill those wounds with hard work. Becoming something of value. Something that we can be proud of. But pride can still take us over. Let me give you two verses that will help you in dealing with pride. I could easily just tell you, be a servant. Be humble. But Jesus said, I could tell you what Paul wrote to the Philippians about have this mind in Christ in you. But let me give you these two. First from James. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And secondly in Jeremiah Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, 
that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Well, let's move on to the final point in the text today. That God keeps his promises to the faithful. And this is verses 32 through 34. This very day, he, that is Sankarib, the king, the Assyrian king, will halt at Nath. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. God ends with an assurance of hope. Isn't it like the Isaiah we've seen throughout these previous chapters? There is judgment and there is hope. There is judgment and there is hope. There is judgment and there is hope. There is hope because God keeps his promises. God assures them that Assyria will be stopped that very day. And we return to the imagery of the master forester. And just as the giant trees of Lebanon will fall at the hands of the forester, so the great and powerful nation of Assyria will fall under God's axe and the remnant will be spared. Here's the big idea today. God works through human agencies to accomplish his will in history. Even when he uses the unrighteous, he does not compromise his moral integrity. He judges the instrument of his judgment after it has served his purpose. It is true and it is comforting that even when God is judging us, he still has the whole world in his hands and he will bring about his sovereign purposes, which is actually our greatest good. I never grow tired of the message to trust God. I am tempted every day to trust myself. I am tempted to trust in things like material possessions, to trust in the wisdom of men, or in some cultural viewpoint that seems right but perverts the truth of the Word of God. God is a holy God, and He is to be feared, for sure. But God is also merciful and loving. He knows how to apply His holiness and His mercy he knows how to apply his judgment and his love. He knows how to apply truth and grace and balance them perfectly. That's why there is none like him. He knows how to apply these collective attributes of his nature in our individual lives and in our collective life together so that we will serve his sovereign purposes, which is also our greatest good. Let me repeat that again. God knows how to apply his holiness and mercy, judgment and love, truth and grace, 
so that they will serve his sovereign purposes, which is our greatest good. Can I get an amen? Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for being the great and gracious God that you are. We sometimes, Lord, struggle when you bring judgment or discipline or pruning or, Lord, when you're trying to sanctify us or help us to become more godly or when you just want us to draw nearer to you. We struggle with those events that happen. Sometimes, Lord, we even wonder where you are in them. But we thank you that we can see in your word the truth. And we thank you that Israel can show us the truth. And we thank you for your promises, Lord, that you will fulfill them. And we pray that you will help us to always be the remnant. And that, Lord, we will serve your purposes. Pray this to your glory in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, God keeps his promises to the faithful, so let's celebrate his faithfulness to us in this song. Would you stand and sing with us? Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin Lost without hope with no place to begin Your love made a way to let mercy come in When death was arrested and my life was redeemed, only beauty remains. My orphan heart was given a name. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance. When death was arrested,
It's your endless love pouring down on us. You have made us new. Now life begins with you. Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Rejoice as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested and my life began. Oh, your grace so free washes over. service for question and answer, answer time with Pastor Tim and Sarah. And tonight, I invite you to return for the Shavuot service. In the Hebrew tradition, that was the holiday of the giving of the law. And it matches and coincides with Pentecost when God gives us the Spirit so that we may keep His law. Come and celebrate. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace, both now and unto life eternal. Amen.